Welcome to the Failsafe. A podcast about writing and failure. Happy New Year! On this special year-end episode, I talk with my friend, draft editor, and sometimes failsafe interviewer, Mark Palanzak. Mark is the author of Pop, a hybrid work that's part memoir and part fiction. Runner-up for the Calvino Prize for Fabulous Fiction, his stories have appeared in Third Coast, The Southern Review, and The American Scholar. He teaches English at the Berklee College of Music and received his MFA from the University of Arizona, where I first met him. And I'm your host, Rachel Yoder. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up, Mark and I talk about the many voices in our heads, a really bad chicken essay I wrote, humiliation, and our favorite moments from the first five episodes of The Failsafe. Hey guys, happy 2017. I wanted to start out the new year with an old friend, Mark, who's a grad school buddy of mine. Mark and I also uh, started Draft, the Journal of Process, together about six years ago, which you might be familiar with from me saying it over and over again on this podcast. Anyway, this episode felt like a great opportunity to reconnect with Mark and talk shop and launch the failsafe into the new year. So without further ado, here we are. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Mark. Rachel, hey. Hey, so we're, we're here. It's New Year's Eve, 2016. Last day of the year. This year sucked. Uh, <laughs> hey, I wanted to thank you for agreeing to talk to me about 2016, the year of the failsafe, and what has transpired, and look forward to failure in 2017. Yeah, I'm psyched to do this. I've had fun interviewing a few people, and thank you for including me on this, Rach. Um, thank you for being a part of this. I really loved your interview with Lucas. It was one of the highlights of my year, listening to it. Uh I had a great time doing that. <laughs> so I thought today, because, you know, people on New Year's Eve take stock of their projects and then look toward the future, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about if this crazy experiment we've embarked on of this podcast has been fruitful, and should we continue? Shall the podcast continue? Yes, absolutely it should. <laughs> Um, yeah, so why, I mean, why don't we talk a little bit about the episodes that we've done this year and some of our favorite moments and how our own writing's going? Oh, we can talk about our own. Yeah, if we're failing miserably. I have a lot of questions for you. Or just succeeding beyond our wildest dreams. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that is one funny thing about uh, this podcast is that um, it's about creative failure and the struggles of failure. Uh, but everybody who's been on the show is a success <laughs> <laughs> Be, beyond what what I do. So they, they can talk about failure at, at somewhat of a protected distance where I feel like I'm, I'm right at the, the molten core of it. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like you've gotten at like the crux of what this podcast has been talking about. And also I had... I had like a revelation about failure and success and thinking about our writing. And it has to do with something Garth said in the first episode. Um, so Garth Greenwell, he had an amazing book in 2016 called What Belongs to You. James Wood just said it was like one of the best books of 2016, which is amazing and totally deserved. It's a brilliant novel. Anyway, so Garth said in episode one, to write the novel, I really had to treat it like trash. If a piece of paper was whole, I was paralyzed. I couldn't compose sentences. I had to rip it into pieces in order to write on it. I think that treating it like trash was a way of saying, this is not art. I'm not making anything permanent. I'm accepting from the beginning this is failure. This is just a complete disaster from the start. And that allowed me to write. So I totally relate with this impulse to be like, what I'm making is a disaster. This is a failure. Like, I have no problem with thinking of myself as a failure. In fact, it might even be my downfall. Um, because you also, you know, one, you can't take your work too seriously. You need to embrace that sometimes at some levels it's trash. But on the other hand, you also have to believe enough in your capabilities to keep moving forward and that I've kind of been getting tripped up on because I've been starting to write again and I'm going into a big book edit edit right now and that like you know the voice of failure the voice that tells you you're horrible and you're never gonna write another thing ever again that voice has been so loud that I've just kind of been paralyzed and I had this realization the other day that, you know what, at this point in my writing life, I've written enough things that can kind of serve as proof that I can actually write an okay story or essay. Like I have this proof in my history and I'm just going to use that going forward to take that huge monster voice of like doubt and failure and just it's okay for me to just say that is garbage and I'm just going to move forward. I have a few stories and a few essays that can kind of boost me forward. And it's felt really freeing and I'm going to use that going into 2017 to just be like it's okay for me to just throw away that garbage voice. Like I don't need it to keep me safe and to keep me um from putting out garbage. Like, I'm not going to put out garbage. It's okay. So I can just throw away that voice. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. Um, I think that one thing that you said there from that Garth quote about it, he had to like rip up these little pieces of paper so that it looked like trash um, and that it's freeing in that way. But you, you also introduced the idea that you have written stuff in the past that you approve of. <laughs> so like, 
you can look at it back at a story and say, okay, I do have skill or I did have skill at one point. So if it feels like garbage right now, um, it, it, that story that I actually like of my own probably felt that way at that time. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. And just that the voice of that tells me that what I write is horrible is a really irrational voice. So I'm trying to introduce some kind of logic into the equation that like, if I wrote something good in the past, then it follows that there's a very high chance that I could write something good in the future. And it's not, you know, I'm not all the things that this voice is telling me and I shouldn't just stop writing forever. One thing that the, I have that same voice, but one thing it does is say, I'll look back over stories and be like, yeah, I, I am good. And then I'll, then immediately the voice will say, you used to be. <laughs> Like you're, you're not going to do that again. You can't access that frame of mind ever again. I know. But, I And I get like jealous of a past me. I'm like, oh man, 28-year-old Rachel was so cool. Yeah, She's such I, a good writer. I hate her. And I and I feel like this, this, this comes full circle with that Garth quote because now when I write, I, when I look back on that, it seems I didn't have, if I look back on like my younger stories and I find something that I find like really interesting or exciting uh, I'll think whoa I didn't even have my routine then where did I write that like was I drunk what happened <laughs> uh, and now when I sit down as a slightly older man to write it's a much more deliberate process and I think that what Gar's talking about with like the scraps of paper instead of the clean white page where everything's held together is that like when I sit in front of the blank page at my computer at my desk at 35 years old and I say, I'm going to write a story, it feels like every line has to work. Um, and back then, when it was like my routine was messier and I was writing on like notebooks and creating stuff that I kind of like now, it's like, yeah, because it didn't feel like it was ever going to get published. I was just like scrappy. Yeah, and it, it also feels like I should know something now when I sit down to write. Like, I should know how to do this. I've been doing this for a while. But Gar, the thing that Gar said about ripping it up, making it messy, it's like breaking, you know, breaking that idea back down. And it seems to be, you know, the process of writing is this constant balancing act of like, going back to kind of becoming a beginner, but also having confidence in yourself. Every time you sit down to write, you have to be like, I know nothing. And I know a lot about what I'm doing. And you have to balance both of those ideas. One thing that I do know now is that I know, I know what is failing better than I used to. I used to write stories and hand them to someone and be like, I have no idea what this is. And then they'll turn to me and be like, yeah, it's nothing. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, now I don't need to do that as much. Um, I'm a bit better at assessing when something's done, whether or not it's good. But in the middle of it, like, no. What do you write on, Rachel? Um, I exclusively, well, I shouldn't say that. I almost exclusively write on my computer. But the other day, I'm noticing now I have these little flashes and I always think, oh, I, I can just go home and write that down. But now because of my life and my limited 
brain capacity that doesn't happen. So I was writing on my phone the other day. Um, but I never write longhand. You never do? No. You Have you ever? Not really. It's not fast enough. I find it really frustrating. Huh. What about you? I'm like 80% handwritten. Hmm. Um, and I get those like moleskins and I fill them up, the medium size ones, and I'll write out and about wherever. And then I'll come home and transcribe it into the computer so that I get like an immediate quick second draft of whatever I put down, like the sentence gets rewritten or deleted while I'm entering it in. I like that process. But I feel like I write better stuff by hand uh, because it looks too perfect in like a Word doc on your computer screen. So if it's at all like screwed up on there, like I have to go back and edit it where in, in a in a notebook, even though it's not faster, I just keep going because there is no like editing on there. Hmm. Yeah, mine is more a process of what I'm more concerned with is catching catching a thing as I'm in it. So I kind of have to get in this. A lot of my writing is about channeling something, like channeling like a feeling. Um, and I got to catch it, so I just need to I need to move through it fast. I've never even thought about that before, but that's why I, I like think for me, it's much more about powering through to the end because there's so much doubt along the way that I could scrap anything. But if it's in a notebook and I can't go back and scrap it, I have to say, like, okay, I have to wait till I get to the end in order to rewrite any of it. Mm. Then I go all the way through. That's a good trick. Well, you should, I mean... You've got your own stuff going on. I wouldn't mess with your process. No, I know. I mean, my trick, because I'm in the computer, is I tell myself I don't have to write all the way through to the end. I get to write whatever I want to write next. So if there's a scene that I'm really excited to write or a little snippet, I'm like, you just go and write that. It doesn't matter if it's not, you know, linear or whatever. There's another quote from the Garth Greenwell episode. I'm staring at right here, and it says, I'm only going to read the first part of it because that's the real impactful part. The life of a writer is a life of failure and humiliation. <laughs> and That was the one I wanted to talk about too, Mark. You wanted to talk about that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up. It's next on my list. I mean, the fact that he attached humiliation to failure, I think, is spot on. Um, it's not just that you're going to fail. It's that when you fail, you're humiliated. <laughs> um, and, uh, I was wondering, Rachel, tell us about your humiliation. You know, I actually have a really good story about this. So this fall, I started doing a little freelance work. Um, for the first time, I'm like, I'm going to write stuff for money. So I wrote this very kind of mediocre piece about breakfast. It's fine. I got some money for it. Not super embarrassed about it. Then I wrote this other essay. It was about backyard chickens and motherhood. Yeah. And I was like really into it. I sent it to my best friend. She's not a writer, but who's a great reader. And she's like, yeah, you need to like publish this. So I sent it to a few places. Um, 
and I sent it to, uh, so I had long time ago, had a modern love essay, always been trying to get back in there. I'm like, I'll send it to Dan Jones. I send it to Dan. And as soon as I send it to him, I realize how just dumb and basic and trifling this essay is. And I'm just immediately humiliated. And before you sent it? As soon as I sent it. Oh, you hit send. And I'm like, uh, probably shouldn't have done that. You know, and I don't hear back from him for a month. And he's like, of course, this isn't a fit. And I just deleted and told myself to pretend it had never happened. <laughs> and now I'm telling you. Did he never write back? No, he did write back. He was very, very cordial. But like, I'm embarrassed about what he must think. Wow, Rachel's really gone downhill since that's she had so, kids. That's so great because I feel like when a when a magazine accepts a story for the first time, then like they don't know you. You're like, oh my god, great validation! Someone's finally recognized my talent. <laughs> and then you they publish it, and then you write another one, and you're like, well, now I have a relationship with that editor. You send them the next one, and they're like, whoa. <laughs> We, we were totally wrong about this person's gifts. <laughs> um, really hit the jackpot with that first one. Yeah. Oh, well, why, but, why were you drawn to this quote? Have you, why, why did the humiliation stick out for you? This quote is that, that line is just so blunt. The life of a writer is a life of failure and humiliation. Um, and I think that when I was first getting into writing, that's not what I thought I was getting into. <laughs> and having Garth put it down so starkly like that, um, I think that the word humiliation comes up because I have a fear of failure, um, and that failure manifests as humiliation. It's not like, oh, I wrote this thing, and it's it's not progressing the way or touching people the way it should. It's like... No, I write something that reveals how idiotic I am, finally, to the world. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows now and stares at me while I walk down the street. Um, and I think that that's, that's the real dread, is that you turn over a story or an essay to either an editor you respect, your wife or husband, a friend, <laughs> um, and then they just look at you funny. Like, you, what was going on here? That's the humiliation that is just so scary. I think that's really well put. And I also think this is a great lead in to the next quote, which is I wanted to talk about, which is actually from Chris Boucher, who you spoke with. And he had this great line, the way that I can multiply the failure is by reading too much into it. And it reminds me of something that our mutual friend, Tim Denevi, once told me. Tim. Tim. If you don't know Tim, you, you want to. Author, author of Hyper. Tim, author, author of Hyper. He, so one, you know, he was just witnessed many of my humiliations, writing and otherwise. Um, and I had a particular romantic debacle. And Tim was like, Rachel, don't take this experience 
and then like make it mean something about you and like turn it into this big story and it's like part of your identity and it's like who you are. He's like, it's just one thing that went wrong. It doesn't like mean anything about you. And that's what that Chris quote is kind of saying to me that like, yeah, I wrote the chicken essay, but it doesn't mean that I therefore am just like a writer of only farm-based literature that's trifling and sentimental, right? You know, like it means I had a moment and then I'm going to move on and do some other stuff. But I think I can get caught in that and like taking one little failure and turning it into like the story about me as a writer. Denevi the Sage. It's true. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that the multiplying the failure is like it's just so addictive <laughs> at some point like you, you like i want to trash something so in order to do that it has to like be a black scroll downward spiral until i actually get rid of it well also the thing is i don't want other to peep other people to think that i don't know how bad something i wrote is like if i have full knowledge of my own idiocy at least i'm like winning in that regard you know it can be like well yeah i know it was horrible you don't, you don't think I thought that was good, right? <laughs> oh. This is a really uplifting conversation, by the way. I know. We're, well, wait, there is there is something uplifting in here. Um, in two, I noticed that Chris Boucher, who you're talking about from episode two, and Christine Sneed say similar, have two similar quotes, and I like them. Um, at the And Chris says... At the end of the day, all I can control, all I can do is write something that I love, and that's got to be worth something. And I think in all of this failure, like we're talking about the external stuff, um, handing it over to someone, sending it to an editor, having other people think that like, oh, we can't write or, or whatever. But there, there are several times that I've been writing and really enjoyed it and loved what I put down. And not even necessarily sent it out, not even like didn't even show it to anybody. But I have I have tons of stuff I've written that I read and I smile looking back on that never became anything external. Um, and this also connects with the Garth, the another Garth quote, quote, which is, "For a writer to fail is just to stop writing." So in the end. It really is. I mean, all this stuff is funny to talk about, about failure and dread and humiliation. But when it comes down to it, like, we do love something about it um, or else we wouldn't keep going after this punishment. Uh, and it's this. Like, at the end of the day, it's got to be worth it just to sit down and write. And Christine also talks about how it's such a part of her mental health. Um, and that's that's totally true. I can't stop writing as much as I like to complain about my writing career <laughs> yeah I again I had something Christine said if you're a writer you write you have to enjoy the process at base level that's all you've got and you know even though the chicken essay is bad it was it felt great writing it and it felt necessary for me to write it and work through something um and, you know, I've been thinking a lot more these days about why I write as I'm kind of coming up out of this um, 
little time of silence and not writing. And things, writing that I do that isn't sort of motivated by my need to work through something, whether it's working through it emotionally or intellectually, like doesn't feel like essential writing to me. And so, you know, even though the chicken essay is horrible, it was, I felt great writing it and I felt like myself writing it. I felt like I was kind of like returning to a Rachel that I had really missed. Um, so I guess back that's the value of the chicken essay. What's that? Back when you used to hen it up. I did used to hen it up. Yeah. You know, I don't like puns. Yeah. <laughs> In Leslie Jameson's episode, um, I did like finding out what Detroiting it meant. <laughs> Um, but her, the quote that I, I really like is I started writing essays as an escape from my novel and the essays got this force out of being a secret side project. They got to feel really fun and really free. Um, and I, I start to see a little bit of a theme here from the very first Garth Greenwell quote where there's something special about working on something that is not your main goal or is not going to be this perfect form thing. And the fact that uh, Leslie Jameson's working on a novel and then to escape, she writes essays and they take on a different feeling. It's like this like little s secret um, guilty pleasure that she has and she gets enjoyment out of it and then they become these amazing essays themselves. I really like that because I think that that's, on a technical, like on a logistical level, a way to combat the internal editor voice where I can imagine working on a novel because I have, and it's so long and it's so tedious. And then you think like, this is a failure. And also I'm not writing the type of novel I should write. So then you switch it up and go do something else entirely so that you can then return to it. I think that having these different projects going on, um, are too quick for your internal editor to keep up with. <laughs> so if you're working on a novel for long enough, like it's going to catch up and say like, no, this isn't right. You got to re redo it. But if you constantly switch and then you're writing an essay and then you're writing a short story and then you're writing a novel and then you're writing a chicken essay, <laughs> um, it's too nimble for the person inside your head to say like, stop it. Yeah. I, I also wonder if it's a matter of feeling transgressive, you know, like depending on, on who your critic is at any given moment, if your critic saying, you know, this novel isn't any good. And then you write an essay or write something that feels transgressive. That's just for yourself. And then, like you said, the, the editor voice catches up with you and you, you're like, well, I'm going to go back and work on this, traditional mass market novel and that feels transgressive after you've been working on you know yeah. your little self-indulgence and again it's that like you just have to keep balancing out that voice and figuring out a way to like you said like to stay ahead of it all of my best writing has always felt really transgressive and been just for me like I've been entertaining myself my best writing is always that, and I don't know why. I mean, I do know why I do other stuff, because I think I need to, like, sell a novel or write something that's going to be a bestseller. Um, but I don't think I can trick myself out of, like, if I'm going to write a bestseller or, you know, quote-unquote something that's, like, more mass market, it still is going to have to feel transgressive and 
completely entertain me. Yeah. Who do you write for, Mark? Do you write for yourself or do you write for an imagined reader? The I would totally agree with you that the I can I know that the best stuff that I've written that and other people enjoy and I that that I continue to enjoy was stuff that when I was writing it I was delighting myself. <laughs> like I had those images, I wanted to get them down perfectly. Oh, when I when the story does this and like I just I'm right in the middle of it and it's so entertaining for me. Those last. Um, and it's the ones where I feel like I'm piecing together something conceptual and thematic and like really literary and I'm just trying to work at this art game like those are the ones that wind up I don't I don't like them later on and I don't think that they they resonate with people um but who do I write for I think that I definitely sometimes you just get lost and you write for yourself um Kurt Vonnegut gave out one piece of advice that I've tried to carry with me that like each story is written to an audience like you can't forget about the audience but think of the audience as only one person um picture someone in your life like I would picture you and write a story and imagine you reading it so that that would keep my meter going like oh that part sucks Rachel's not gonna like that or oh she's gonna dig this um instead of trying to appeal to 10 20 or like a thousand people trying to get it right for someone else besides yourself but like one person who's a good reader yeah when you know when we were um in grad school together there was this essay that what was his name I think his name was I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up but this man who was a professor there who had also gone to the MFA program years earlier wrote this essay and one of the lines was address your work to the love of your life which, uh, yeah. which has like been in my mind. Um, but I think what's important in that is I agree with you, like addressing it to one person, you know, maybe sometimes it's the love of your life. Maybe sometimes it's someone else, but it really focuses the writing. Since, uh, since you say love of your life, I was curious, do you show your stuff to Seth, your husband? <laughs> um, sometimes. Yeah. It's, I don't take creative feedback from him very well. I get really impatient. He's he's a really good line editor. Um, so if I'm ever like doing a final pass of something before it's going to go to print, I definitely want him to read it. Um, but no, he doesn't read a lot of my stuff. Huh. Yeah, I think that that also is where I got triggered with the humiliation line. <laughs> Where, like, I really want Allie to respect me. So it's, like, it's got to be a really good story if I'm going to show it to her. (laughs) (laughs) Does she ever, I mean, does she give you feedback? And can you hear it? She has it in the past, yeah. Uh, But recently I haven't asked her for it. I've been working on one long thing for a while. Um, And a couple stories... And I haven't asked her. One, because she's just too freaking busy right now. Um, And the other is, I think it might be an indication that they're not done. I think that that might be it. But she's she's given me good, um, not line edits, but like, you need to do something here. Like, the ending needs to do this, like, much more general sort of, I was waiting for this shift or arc. Um, Yeah, and she's an incredible reader. Uh, and not a scientist like your husband. (laughs) 
Yeah, poor Seth. He he can't win because even if he's like, it's really good. I liked it. I'll be like, well, why aren't you being more enthusiastic about it? <laughs> you talk about other stuff you read more enthusiastically. And he's like, I liked it. And I'm like, I don't think you liked it. So yeah, that's not good. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, well, Seth, I mean, I've never liked any of Seth's short stories. <laughs> but you would if you wrote them. That's why he's the you, worst. Will you post the chicken essay on the failsafe site? Oh my gosh, I don't. I think I've been humiliated enough. Oh, come on. I don't think so. If Was it ever anything... gets published in some other form, I'll I'll put it I'll let the I'll put it up on the failsafe, a link to it, but no. Okay. Was there was there a particular um, bit of advice or quote from Lucas Mann's episode? <laughs> there was. Let me pull it up enjoy. here. It was some. It was kind of something that um, echoed what Garth said. Oh, so one thing Lucas said. He said. When you say this is horrible, he's talking about writing. When you say this is horrible and this is really failing, clearly there's something happening at some level of the brain that doesn't fully believe that or else I would stop. And we've kind of touched on this before, but it's like we have these different voices because they're doing different things. Like you need that voice to say this is horrible so that you can make it better. But like Lucas said, clearly there's a part of you that believes you're a good writer and believes you have something to say and believes you can make it beautiful. Um, and so you keep going and it's just making sure neither one of those voices gets too loud because if the voice that's like, I'm so great gets too loud, then you are going to fool yourself. You're going to be a fool. You're going to write something and look like a fool. But if you also have that critical voice and it doesn't just completely push you underwater. That's a really helpful voice because it makes sure you don't look like a fool. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's, also, it's just hard to imagine Lucas actually feeling panicked. So it was just comforting to hear that he is. I know. He always says stuff like that, but I'm like, really? I don't know if I believe it. He seems so confident. Yeah. It's one thing I admire about him. But this is the thing. Um, from a distance, everybody – I mean we all try to look confident. Another thing we've, – we've talked about this before. We should probably dedicate an episode to it. But just like the social media aspect of success and failure in writing, um, I say that like, oh, I can't believe that Lucas would be panicked or, or doubting himself. Of course he doubts himself. But like all I can think of are these two-dimensional images of people and I see like, oh, his two books are amazing. Oh, like he's giving a reading. Oh, he has this great review. And like that's just like, you know, somewhere out in social media or like uh, news and I just attach that to him and just say like, of course he's doing well. And then you talk to the person behind it and they have all their struggles. Um, not that... Lucas is a big social media guy, but it's out there. I just picture everybody who's successful as being like, yeah, I got it on lockdown. <laughs> but they're not. But I think, I mean, I think the reason people have, that have responded to this podcast is because if you are engaged in this life of trying to be a writer and to write, we're all doing this balancing act, this like psychological balancing act and it it doesn't that's not something that comes through 
normally. But then we talk about it and we realize, oh, yeah, we're all doing this, even the most successful writers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it never it never goes away, which is comforting and also horrific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we signed up for it, I guess, at some point. The, the exaltation and the misery <laughs> of doing this. But we just keep on going back. We just keep on going back because there's something to it. It's true. It's true. Today is December 31st. Are you going to write today? Um. Well, you know, I did. I did what I consider to be writing work. I've been working on some questions for an interview I'm going to do or hopefully going to do. I'm sort of in the pitching stage. So that to me is um, creative work and maybe I'll, I have a paragraph I really want to write. So my goal is to write that paragraph down before the end of the day. What about you? Um, I will, I'll write a little just cause we did this. What are you working on? Um, I just want to say Mark is one of those people who always is like, you always have like eight novellas in process which I'm so jealous of. You're like, oh, I'm like working on this book, but then I have this other book, and then I have this story, which I think is so great. Well, yeah, I mean, I just finished the second draft of another novel, and I've already started the next one in the moleskins. So I'll probably continue doing that one longhand. I'm, I'm writing through a scene at a bar right now. <laughs> with... Uh, these two characters one is trying to get the other one to allow him to drive him home because he's too drunk but the character does not want to be driven home he wants to drive himself home the age-old debate bar debate yeah i wonder what will happen at the end of it who knows will he drive him home (laughs) (laughs) so you had mentioned something before we started about the podcast itself and when I kind of pitched this idea to you, you're like, Oh yeah, good idea. Go for it. Don't know how you don't know if it's something I'd listen to. Um, I mean, you didn't really say it that way, but now that we've done our first half dozen or so episodes, you, and you've kind of cut, you were in the, the, the dark midwinter. Yeah. Um, it's something that maybe is resonating with you more. Yeah. I mean, just today looking back over this and thinking back over talking in person with Chris, um, Lucas and the future episode of Laura. And then looking over these quotes again, it struck me a little bit more, uh, privately than it had before. I thought of this as like a great show, like a great topic for a show. Um, and then I, I like talking about it, but then actually today when I was looking over it and thinking back over it, it actually struck me as like, no, this is actually useful. It's not just a show that I'm a part of. Like I looked at that and I was like, please, please let all of these writers who are being candid and honest, please let like allow them to be telling the truth. Um, let this be true what they say, cause I'll believe it. Yeah. And I mean, this, as, as you know, arose out of a really personal sort of impulse for me and it has been really 
helpful in getting me back into writing. I mean, there is the whole the whole thing of actually producing it and making it, which takes away from my writing, but, um, you know, it takes away time when I could be writing, but it's also something that, I mean, it is kind of sparking my creativity and leading me back into writing and also just reading all of the books of the people that we've been talking to has been really great. Um, and kind of, you know, feeling, talking with our contemporaries has been really inspiring so I'm still on board it's it's working for you it's working you asked at the beginning should there be more episodes so is that your endorsement there's gonna you're gonna keep going well there are more episodes already okay um there will be more episodes it was kind of a rhetorical question but yeah I mean we have (laughs) we have some uh, some amazing episodes coming up as you well know you interviewed laura vandenberg i talked with roxanne gay i talked with Alyssa nutting jessica hopper um i'm going to be talking with pamela aarons here next week i think we've really hit on something because there are everyone's willing to talk to us about failure and everyone's like yes my favorite topic topic let's talk about it so yeah that just keeps on coming up <laughs> people are psyched, psyched to, to talk about it where, everywhere else they go and all their interviews and stuff they're talking about how amazing they are and like how they're brilliant and did all this and then they just like want to get down and dirty with like this is a sl- this was a struggle <laughs> <laughs> oh writers oh writers okay well I hope you're doing something fun tonight um having some dinner having some champagne having some people over and are you going to go to the party i'm still debating whether i'm going to go to the party put on some heels get dressed up yeah might happen might happen all right stay in with the family (laughs) that you just told me to go to the party and then told me to stay in with the family stay in with the family yeah all right mark i wish i could come to your party but i wasn't invited and um On that note, I wish you a very happy 2017. Happy 2017 to you. And that is it for episode six of The Fail Safe. If you liked this episode, please head on over to iTunes and give us a positive review and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Or even better, consider donating to support The Fail Safe. Just visit our website, thefailsafepodcast.com, scroll down and click on the donate button. Any size gift helps us enormously. We'll use your donations for our tech needs, our live events, and other production and marketing costs. And really, truly, thanks for listening to The Failsafe, a joint production of Draft, The Journal of Process, and The Iowa Writer's House.